Are you glad to be here this morning? Amen. It's a great day to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what Easter is all about, is celebrating something that is so remarkable, so incredibly supernatural. Someone said this morning before the service, if not for the resurrection, why would we even be here today? That's why we're here, is because he rose from the grave on the third day, and he provides for us that same miraculous transformational power in our lives of how he has changed us. If you're a believer here this morning, I want you to think about what's happened in your life just since you've known Christ. The miracles and the steps of growth, everything that has happened is because of resurrection power. The Bible is so clear, and Paul says it like this, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead dwells with each one of you. That's what we have a source with. And I was mentioning on Good Friday at our house the other night that when we learn how to tap into that source of resurrection power, it's unlimited what we can accomplish in the kingdom of God. There, there's no limit to our vision. There's no limit to our dreams. There's no limit to the potential that we have in the kingdom of God as a believer. The series that we're going to begin today is, is called Join the Desert. And I don't know about you, but I, I'm a native Arizonan, and I love the desert. How many can just say, I they really love the desert? We have some Seattle people here from Washington. Hopefully, you've fallen in love with the desert. <laughs> and uh, some of you grew up in Seattle where it rains, uh, you know, every day, almost all year long. And here, it's like the sun shines forever, every day, practically. I, I love the desert. There's something very uh, interesting about the desert, though, for the plants and the animals that live in the desert. They've learned how to adapt and, and really readily survive in a desert environment, when you think about it. It seems like joy is elusive in the desert. Oftentimes, people look at it, it just seems barren, dry, hot, lifeless. But yet, if you really understand, you go into the desert and fully appreciate it, it is full of life, especially at night. It's not lifeless. It's not as barren as you might think it is. And there are seasons in the desert that I love, especially in the spring when it, it comes into full bloom in the desert. It, it's one of the most beautiful uh, landscapes in all of the world when you think about that. In this series, Joy in the desert is important because the desert represents the, the seasons or times of our life where it does seem barren, empty, hot. It just seems lifeless, and it just seems like it will never end. How many of you feel like that in the fall about October? And I hear people saying this all the time. I wonder if the summer's ever going to end. <laughs> it's still hitting 100 degrees in October. This Something's not right with this. But when finally that heat wave ends and it starts cooling off by November, it's just it's a relief. And it's almost like we discover our joy again. And we really love the desert. We love the valley. Because then we can look back east when it's 20 below zero and say, well, it's 75 degrees here. We love it. I love the desert. Joy in the desert. When I was a kid, and many of you will remember, some of you might remember this. It was a very simple, it was a kid's song in kid's church. And they always sang this in vacation Bible school in the summertime when I um, went to vacation Bible school. And I remember sitting on the front row and my brothers and I, we thought it was kind of a corny song actually, but it went like this. I've got the joy, joy, joy down deep in my heart, down in my heart, down in my heart. I've got the joy, joy, joy down in my heart to stay. And that's kind of like the chorus. 
But I think what has happened so oftentimes in the church and in believers' lives is that the joy is not really there to stay. It's kind of like it's left in a lot of believers, but also for those in the world who have never truly had an encounter with Jesus Christ. There's a counterfeit in the world for everything that the Bible proposes to us in terms of fruitfulness and satisfaction and fulfillment. It's like the enemy, and the Bible teaches this, offers the counterfeit joy in the world, and we latch onto those counterfeits, and it's only a season that the counterfeit really brings that temporary joy, but it always seems to elude us, and the next day after the party or whatever, it's like the joy has lifted and left, and it's like it didn't last. It's kind of like we look forward to the next party or the next Friday night. It's not a joy that stays. It's not a joy that really resides within our heart and within our emotions. But it seems to be an elusive joy in the world because it's a counterfeit joy. And joy in the desert is important for us to understand as a believer because God is here today to resurrect joy in our lives. For us as a believer, but also for those who don't know Jesus Christ, the Lord wants to resurrect not a counterfeit joy, but a joy that's lasting. It's the joy, joy, joy down deep in my heart to stay. That it doesn't have to elude us, but we embrace that. I, I, I heard an author speak one time, and he said, a joyless Christianity is a powerless Christianity, and I believe that. A joyless Christianity is a powerless Christianity because it's the joy that gives us the passion and it opens our eyes to the vision and the perspective for us to move forward and to realize that Jesus is alive. He's risen from the grave. He's alive today and he's working and moving throughout the world and through our lives and and a lot of us don't fully comprehend that. We think that Jesus is just touching somebody else, but what does he know about my life and my circumstance? What does he know about me? And I mentioned on Friday night that God is more concerned about your life as an individual and the details of your life more than he is the headlines of the newspaper. I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 24, and this will be our text this morning that I want to read. In Luke chapter 24, you find 11 disciples that are in a desert the shores of Galilee, trying to find their way now. The the Savior, the Master is dead. He's been crucified. Everybody who calls himself a Christ follower has been marked. There's fear. There's apprehension. The presence of Jesus is no longer there. His words of life, the security that he brought, his miracle working power that surrounded them for those three years has dissipated and now they're just trying to find their way. They're trying to survive and that's what a desert experience is often like for for everybody in the world when they feel like they're in a wilderness or a desert, it's like, I'm surviving. Have you been there before? Feel like I'm just, I'm surviving to the next day. And I think it's exactly what the 11 disciples were experiencing and the two men on the road from Emmaus who encountered Jesus in this post-resurrection experience come running back to Jerusalem to tell the 11 disciples the most incredible news that they could possibly imagine. And these two men made their way in verse number 35, and they told the story of how Jesus appeared to them as they're walking along the road and how they recognized him as he was breaking bread. And just as they were telling about it, 
Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them, and he greets them, peace be unto you. It's the traditional greeting you see around the world in many cultures, and not just Christianity, but many religions, shalom among the Hebrews, and then salam among the Muslims, and and it's it's the peace, that traditional greeting. How are you doing? It's good to be here. And he was standing there, And the whole group startled and frightened, thinking they had seen a ghost. Forgetting the words and the prophetic utterances and forgetting the scriptures and the promises that Jesus made that I I will rise again. They're going to take my life, but I'm going to give it up freely, but I'm going to rise again. They forget this. They think it's done and over. That This revolution, this spiritual revolution and, and, and everything that Jesus taught them has ended, and now we need to get on with their lives and somehow survive through this desert time. And Jesus shows up. In a remarkable encounter, why are you frightened, he asks, why are your hearts filled with doubt? Look at my hands, look at my feet, you can see it's me, touch me, make sure that I am not a ghost, and ghosts don't have bodies as you see that I do, and he spoke, he showed them his hands and his feet. I think that our world, and if you could say it's really like a desert, our, our, it's, it's consumed with fear and doubt, I, I see it each and every week. On the news, in our world, among friends and family, there's much fear, there's much doubt about the political, the economic situation. Even in the churches, there's much fear and doubt of what is God saying, what is God doing. We experience those emotions oftentimes in our experience with the Lord. Just as these disciples are experiencing it, they're consumed with it. In Psalm 34, it said, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. They need to have a new experience. And Jesus said, touch me, make sure that I'm not a ghost. And they stood there in verse 41 in disbelief, filled with joy and wonder. One translation says it like this, that they're standing there with Jesus trying to process this whole thing, knowing, first of all, thinking out of fear and doubt, it's a ghost, but yet this person has a body. It's not a ghost. He's got scars on his hands and his feet. There's a scar in his side. It's evidence. It's proof that Jesus has risen from the grave. And the translation says it like this, their joy was so great, but it was almost too good to be true. It was almost too good to be true. And we've used that statement oftentimes that I I can't believe it. He's alive. And I would imagine if I'm one of those 11 disciples who betrayed him, who ran out on him, who didn't defend him, that they all scattered. Peter denied him three times. I mean, the guilt and the shame that we're experiencing, thinking that Jesus is probably going to point fingers and say, where were you on the night of the resurrection? But he doesn't point fingers. He doesn't condemn. And perhaps they're whispering among themselves, he's alive. It's almost too good to be true. Jesus is alive. And this is the kind of joy that I think is so pivotal in a desert experience when we have an encounter with him. And the presence of Jesus shows up in our life and in many different ways. And it's almost too good to be true. He asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he ate it as they watched him. 
They ate it. In the culture of this day, and still in many of these cultures in this area, there's something very significant about sitting down at a table with someone that you love and have relationship with. In fact, it, it signifies deep relationship when you sit at a table and break bread together and you eat together, and even uh, an enemy that sits down at your table no longer becomes an enemy. He becomes a brother or a sister because they're at the table and they're eating, and it, it's a sign of the covenant relationship that they would have with each other. And I think more than Jesus, like, well, I'm going to show you that I have a real body here, the resurrected body, by eating a piece of fish. I think it was much more than that. Do you have a piece of fish? And he's eating it in front of them, with them. And when it speaks to the disciples in this culture, is that the covenant relationship has not dissolved and has not ended. He still loves us. He still cares for us. He's not cutting us off because of what we did three days ago. And the joy that's enumerating from their heart and from their emotions because of this experience, and he eats this fish in front of them, and again, it solidifies the relationship and the acceptance that is there. And he said, when I was with you before, I told you everything written about me in the Law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. In other words, you knew all this. I taught this to you. I spoke this to you that I would rise again on the third day. I'm just fulfilling what Moses said, what David said in the prophets even in Isaiah, and he said it was written about that the Messiah would suffer and die, rise up from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name, beginning in Jerusalem, and go through all of the world that forgiveness of sins for all who repent. You are witnesses of all these things. Psalm 16 says, you will show me the way of life, granting me the joy of your presence and the pleasures of living with you forever. There's something about when Jesus shows up, his presence is revealed and manifested there in that moment. They're thinking he's not just alive, but he is still with us. He still loves us. He still accepts us. Something very powerful about the presence I've always wondered why three days? Why was Jonah in the belly of a whale three days, which was a picture of Christ being in the belly of hell for three days, and then Jonah is resurrected from the whale, Jesus is resurrected from the grave, literally, and from hell itself, and there's these pictures in the Bible that gives us a thing, why would God choose three days? And I kind of have my own uh, I guess, interpretation of that. And I'm thinking, in the desert, I've heard so many times on so many different survival programs that I've watched and, and I enjoy when they're, they're eating bugs and lizards and snakes and all that kind of stuff, and they're drinking crazy things to survive in the desert. It's intriguing to me. And they always make the statement that Nobody in the world really can go without water more than three days. You can live in the desert for up to three days, but if you don't drink water after three days, you're going to die. And I'm wondering if there was a conversation in heaven between the father and the son where he says, look, these guys aren't going to make it more than three days, okay, so we're, we're not going to go longer than that. And he rises from the grave on this third day. And I think that there's something very unique and interesting about three days, 
In Psalm 26, 126, 5, it says that those who plant in tears will harvest with shouts of joy. That there's that season where they're, they're crying, they're weeping, they're upset. Jesus is dead. He's died. He's in the grave. Have you heard what's happening in Jerusalem that all the Christians and Christ followers are marked people and uh, we're all at risk here? And you can imagine what it was like during that time, and even in our own lives when there's the, 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 the tears that are being shed, the sadness and the, the weeping. The Bible says, weeping may endure for a night, but joy will come in the morning. And there's a word for us here today of joy in the desert that maybe after a few days, but there's this expectation that those who plant in tears will harvest with shouts of joy. It's a biblical principle that God has given us that I think is so dynamic and powerful. And that's exactly what's happening in, in this particular passage in Scripture in Luke chapter 24. You're witnesses of all of these things. Isaiah 51.3 puts it like this. The Lord will comfort Israel again and have pity on her ruins. Her desert will blossom like Eden. Her barren wilderness, like the garden of the Lord, and joy and gladness will be found there. Songs of thanksgiving will fill the air. In Psalm 32, 1, oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Throughout the scripture, you can find verse after verse after verse where tears and desert times and wilderness experiences were perceived, but there's a joy that comes that God has promised us. There's a resurrection that takes place, not only with Jesus' body of being resurrected from the grave, but this is a biblical principle throughout Scripture that you see God resurrect the ruins of Jerusalem. You see God resurrect people's lives and restore them. You see God resurrect his kingdom that seemed like it was under attack and destruction, but that is the nature and that is the heart of God to bring resurrection and for those that are sitting here today that you see a ruin of your life of your past whether it's something of of sin that's been committed that you've never been able to overcome if you don't know Jesus here this morning God wants to resurrect your life and put the past in the past and forgive all of the sins of your life and cause you to be resurrected in the sense that there's a future for your life and he's restoring everything that the enemy has taken and everything that has been lost, God wants to restore it. It's a basic principle of Scripture throughout the Old and throughout the New Testament. And Jesus lives it out. And we wouldn't be here this morning if not for the resurrection. And this encounter, this first encounter with the disciples, when he reveals himself in such a way that he doesn't make any accusations towards him. He doesn't show any sense of remorse or anger. It's like, this had to happen. I promised you that this would happen. And now he basically wants them to take this message beginning at Jerusalem, and then I want you to go into all the world and preach that there's forgiveness of sins for all who repent and come to Christ, that you can take the resurrection message that you're experiencing right now, and where people literally will come to an encounter with Jesus Christ, and it's almost what they're feeling there that their joy was so great they couldn't hardly believe it. It's almost too good to be true. He's alive. He's alive. And this is the revelation 
on an Easter Sunday in Scottsdale, Arizona, and around the world that is the revelation that God wants to reveal freshly again to the church and to the entire world that Jesus is most certainly alive. He rose from the grave 2,000 years ago. He's walking with us. He's walking throughout this earth, searching and seeking for the hearts who would literally surrender their lives to him so that he can resurrect them, bring forgiveness and restoration to their life, and put them on a path of joy that they've never experienced. And it's not a counterfeit joy, but it's a joy that lasts. It's a joy that goes through the week. It's not just merely an emotion of joy, but there's something deep within our heart and our spirit that when we can even sing that song as we sang when we were kids, there's a joy, there's a joy, joy deep in my heart that will stay. It's the spiritual void. It's the theologians put it, the, that spiritual vacuum and void that everybody is born with, and the Bible calls it eternity in their hearts, searching for something to fill a void that nothing counterfeit in this world can possibly fill it, but only Jesus can fill it, and when he does, that is the game changer of our life. It changes everything. Join the desert. I do love the desert. I don't always love the, the dryness and bareness and the heat that I experience in the desert. And joy doesn't have to be elusive in the desert. That's what we're beginning in these coming weeks to speak about is joy in the desert, how we maintain it, how we walk in it. But it begins, first of all, with the surrender of our heart and our life to Jesus Christ. And especially even as a believer, it's like, Lord, when I surrender to you, surrender my passion for the counterfeits and all those things, I've tried to substitute for it. And I let Jesus just fill, simply fill the areas of my life that I can no longer fill. I think that's where it begins, where joy is established. Each and every day, David discovered that secret where he would say that in the presence of God, there's fullness of joy that takes place. Hallelujah. Would you stand with me this morning?